passage this morning is found in John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord Jesus, final words are important words, and so now as we come to your final public words that you spoke, I pray that you would help us to see what you have to say. I pray that you'd help us to understand what you're trying to communicate to us, and I pray, Father, that we would have a desire to follow your desires. I pray that we would see the way of life that Jesus lived and greatly admire him. I pray that there would be fresh worship evoked in our hearts today as we ponder the lifestyle of Christ. And I also pray that we would have a desire to submit ourselves to him, even as he submitted himself to the Father, that we might learn his way of life and enter into his great and eternal and ever-increasing joy. So I pray, Father, that by the Holy Spirit you would come now and illuminate your word, that you would teach your people, that you would exalt your name, that you would transform us into your image, that you would prepare us to go into the world to bring the message of the gospel to our cities and to the nations. And I thank you, Father, for what you will do through this time in the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Near the end of his gospel, John writes these words. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, the ones that I have written about are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote his gospel to evoke faith in our lives. And he wanted to evoke faith in our life so that we would have eternal life. With that purpose in mind, we come to the end of chapter 12, we come to the end of Jesus' public ministry. And at the end of Jesus' public ministry, John provides for us, he records for us, the final statement that Jesus made in public. That statement is about faith. That statement is about what it means to believe in Christ, what happens as we put our faith in Christ, what we gain as we put our faith in Christ. And again, I want to just emphasize that John is telling us about these things, first of all, because Jesus said them, but also his aim is to evoke faith in our life this morning. 
He wants us to change. He wants us to awaken to the things of God. He wants us to fix our eyes upon Jesus and embrace him and follow him in all of his will and all of his ways. After a significant interaction Jesus had with several groups of people in the city of Jerusalem, John tells us in chapter 12, verse 36, that he departed from those people and he hid himself away from them. You may remember from last week that I said that that almost certainly means that with Jesus' words that he spoke there in the earlier verses, that the ire of the religious leaders of Jerusalem was again uh, raised so that they wanted to arrest him and put him to death pretty much right away, maybe even right on the spot. But Jesus escaped from their grasp. The Lord was fully prepared to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Lord was fully ready to lay down his life and take it up again according to the will of his Father. But as I said to you last week, Jesus was absolutely committed to the precise timing of his Father. Absolute precision in obedience was what marked the life of Jesus. And although his hour to suffer and die and be raised again had come near, the minute had not yet come. And so Jesus refused to hand himself over to them and he withdrew for a little while. John uses this time in Jesus' life to help us address a question that's been hovering over the gospel. There's been this tension between Jesus and the Jewish leaders rising, especially from chapter two forward. And now it has come to crescendo. Now it's at its absolute peak of intensity. And so John pauses, and in verses 37 through 43, he helps us understand why this could be, how it could be that the Jewish people who longed for a deliverer for so long ended up hating the one that God provided for them. How could they be so blind? How could they be so deaf? How could they be so hard-hearted? John answers from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1, and Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, that their failure to believe in Jesus was not a failure of his ministry, but it was a fulfillment of prophecy. It's hard to take in, beloved. It's hard to let our hearts settle into this, but John says that these people could not believe in Jesus because the Father himself had hardened their hearts. Now don't get the idea that this is arbitrary, that God just arbitrarily said, well, this group of people, I shall harden your heart, you will not be able to believe. It is not quite that simple. For centuries upon centuries upon centuries, the Jewish people had been hardened toward God. You can read the scripture and clearly see this. And God had been, oh, so incredibly patient with them, so gracious to them. And yet they continued to harden their hearts. And so at some point, God handed them over to their own unbelief. Someone in our community group last Wednesday said that it really didn't take much work for God to harden these people. All he had to do was withdraw his hand of grace. They essentially hardened themselves. And when they saw the living God in the flesh right in front of their eyes, they were blind to it. That's how hard they were. When they heard his word, they were deaf to what he had to say. That's how hard their hearts were. God handed them over to themselves because that is essentially what they were, they were reaping what they had sown for years and in fact for centuries. Now as jarring as a reality as that is, I want us to understand that God also used the hardness of heart among the Jews to kill Jesus Christ and he used the death of Jesus Christ to provide salvation for the world. It's just something we have to ponder. 
It's a great, great mystery. God used the ultimate act of evil, the killing of the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to provide deliverance from sin, in order to provide eternal life, in order to provide salvation from the power of sin. Such is the greatness and the graciousness of our God. And now having given us some, giving us some measure of insight into the purposes and the practices of God with regard to Jesus and the Jews, John goes on to conclude his account of Jesus' public ministry by telling us about Jesus' final statement. Now some people think Jesus actually made this statement before he hid himself away. John isn't always concerned with precise chronology and it's really not that big of a deal. Other people think that Jesus actually came out of hiding, went back into the city square, made one final statement and then drew away with his disciples into the upper room. I don't really know what the timing of the statement was and it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. What matters is that these were the final public words Jesus spoke. That's what matters. And what matters is that the final thing Jesus wanted to reveal to people, proclaim to people, is something about the nature of faith, something about the nature of belief, something about the nature of the unity between him and the Father, and therefore what it means when we believe in him and what kind of life we're being invited into through belief. And so, beloved, his words in one way are simple. You can read verses 44 through 50 and understand them at one level but they're also very deep. There's a lot happening in these verses and I pray that God will help us to press beyond superficial things and go deep into the ocean of the grace and glory that is John chapter 12, verses 44 through 50. So at some point near the end of his public ministry, Jesus lifted up his voice loud in the public square of Jerusalem and he said in verses 44 and 45, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Now, by this, Jesus did not mean that to believe in him is not to believe in him. It's not exactly what he's saying. What he is saying is that to believe in him is ultimately to believe in the Father because he was sent, he was called, he was empowered, he was guided by the Father. Jesus did not authorize himself. Jesus did not send himself. Jesus did not empower himself. Jesus did not guide himself. He was not trying to build his own ministry and a name on this earth. He was not trying even to build a a kingdom for himself. Jesus was fully, absolutely, and happily submitted to the will of the Father. And so to put one's faith in Jesus was essentially to put one's faith in the Father. Now this would not have been a surprising teaching to Jewish people because there was a teaching in their day, was a saying in their day that was very popular. Pretty much any Jew would have known this saying and it was simple, it went like this. One sent is as he who sent him. The one sent is as he who sent him. So what they're talking about is the issue of a, a representative and this is, a, this is an idea we have in our culture as well. This is an idea that most cultures have. We use words like a a representative, a a representative to talk about people like this. One sent on behalf of another. Or we use words like messenger or in a more official sense, a, a word like ambassador. So we have this kind of concept in our culture as well. Jews would have probably heard Jesus say this and think that he saw himself, he envisioned himself as an ambassador. But I wanna suggest to you that he was saying more than that. In verse 46, he 
begins to give us insight into that. He says there, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So if I could put it this way, Jesus is saying that I have not come into the world as a representative of God, I have come into the world as the revelation of God. I've not come into the world as a a messenger sent from God, I have come into the world as the living word of God. I have not come into the world simply as an ambassador representing a great king, I have come into the world as a manifestation of that king. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter one, verse three, he says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the visibility of the glory of God. He is the beauty of the glory of God made visible. Anyone who has ever seen anything of the glory of God has seen it through Christ. This is true from forever to forever. It's true in heaven and it's true on earth. No one has ever or will ever see God the Father except through Jesus Christ. God the Father manifests himself through the Son. He is the manifest radiance of the glory of God. Jesus came into the world as light. He came into the world as revelation. He came into the world to show God to us. And the author of Hebrews says that he's also the exact imprint of the nature of God. Everything that is God is Jesus. And so when he manifests God, he manifests absolute truth about God without any measure of error. Beloved, imagine how great Jesus must be in order to say these things about himself. That I am the radiance of the glory of God. I am the exact imprint of his nature. I am light in the world. I am the revelation of God. To see me is to see the Father. Just to help you get into the emotion of it, what would you do to me this morning if I said to you, if you all look at me right now, you're looking at God the Father. I hope you would take me in another room and discipline me immediately. Do not let me finish that sermon. And if I would not repent, I hope you would remove me. A man should not speak like this. So who is Jesus that he can say to believe in me is to believe in the Father. To see me is to see the Father. When he says that he came as light into the world, he means that he came as the revelation of God. And so when we put our faith in him, we move from light, from darkness into light. We move from blindness into sight. We move from death into life. We become one with Jesus and we become one with the Father because Jesus is one with the Father. Indeed, faith in Christ is faith in the Father because Jesus is one with the Father. Jesus, I believe, beloved, is trying to help us see the depth and the profundity of the relationship between the Father and him. He's gonna take us all the way into the deep end of that ocean in John chapter 17, believe me. But even now, he's hinting at it. He wants us to understand how deep, how profound is the communion between the Father and the Son. And he's trying to help us understand something about faith. He's saying that through faith, through simple belief in Christ, somehow we gain entree into the communion that's there between the Father and the Son. And so now, with that on the table, he's gonna press in a little bit to the details of his way of life, And hopefully this will help us understand more about how faith 
functions from day to day. So if you'll please look with me at verses 47 through 48. Jesus said, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, does not obey them, does not embrace them, does not live by them, well, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Now, at first glance, especially with verse 47, that statement is very surprising. Jesus had just used words to say that to believe in him is to believe in the Father, and to see him is to see the Father. And now he seems to be saying, listen, if you don't accept my words, I'm not going to judge you. That's a little jarring at first. In a a way, it kind of seems like he's not taking his words very seriously. It's kind of hard to understand. He had said before in chapter 8, verse 15, that he did not come to judge the world. John had said of him in chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that's good news. It's good news that Jesus came for the purpose of salvation. But it's still a little confusing to hear him say, I'm not going to judge anybody, because what could that possibly mean? He came to reveal himself and reveal things about God and it seems clear that he then must judge according to his revelation or on the basis of his revelation. And so he adds the words in verse 47 if you'll look there again. The one, or it might be verse 48, I'm sorry. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, namely the word that I have spoken will judge him on that last day. So first, please notice there that Jesus equates rejecting his words with rejecting his person. Notice that. This is true of all of us. If you say something to your children and your children don't believe or receive or obey any of your words, your children are rejecting you. Isn't that right? So this is true really of all of us, but if your words are designed to reveal your being, then rejecting your words is to reject you completely. So just notice right off, Jesus is not saying you can reject me and it's no big deal. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying, or, or he's not saying you can reject my words and it's no big deal. He's saying the opposite. He's saying that to reject his words is to reject his very person and giving what he has just said That also means that to reject his words is to reject the person of the Father. Because his words are a perfect manifestation of the will and the being of God, then to reject them is to reject God. And so Jesus says, listen, I don't need to add words to my words. I don't need to add judgment to my judgment. The speaking of my words is already the judgment. My words are on that final day, is going to be the thing that judges everybody. I have already spoken. I have no need to add words to my words. By revealing truth through his speech, Jesus declares the difference between light and darkness, sight and blindness, death and life, so that when a person chooses him, they choose life, and when a person chooses against him, they choose death. In a sense, they're already judged. They're already Judged, He does not need to add words to his words in order for his words to have their intended effect. This made me think again of Hebrews chapter 4. I just want to read this for you. You don't need to turn there. But the author says there that the word of God 
is living and active. It's not just words on a page in a book in your lap. It's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and marrow. It gets deep, deep into the soul, beyond the superficial, beyond the visible things, beyond the things that we try to hide from others and try to hide from God. It keeps, gets deep down and it cuts and it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And, the author says, no creature is hidden from his sight. Not from its sight, but from his sight, from God's sight. But all, all human beings are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Jesus' words have authority because they proceed from authority. And he tells us that in verse 49, if you'll look at, look at what he has to say there. Why do his words have this kind of effect? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. The reason that the words of Jesus have such authority in this life and in the next life is that his words literally emanated and continue to emanate from the Father and not from himself. And since the words of Jesus derive from such a source of authority, they come with infinite, supreme, and and inescapable power. Beloved, we really should not let this point pass us by because trust me, there's not a soul in this room that will not be held to account by the words of Jesus. Every one of us will stand before God and we will account for our lives on the basis of the words of Jesus and we will not escape this moment. We will not escape the great and final judgment. Whenever the words of Christ were issued from the great authority of God, they came with an infinitely binding authority and therefore we will answer to God on the basis of what we've been hearing at this church through the Gospel of John for an entire year. And, And of course for nine years before that, we've been delighting, bathing in the words of God for years and years. There's not a soul who's been a part of GCF for any length of time that will be with excuse None of us, none of us will be able to say, I didn't know. And so I pray, beloved, I pray that we would hear the depth of what Jesus is saying, understand the power of the authority of his words, and know that we will answer to God for our lives on the basis of the words of Jesus. And in addition to this general truth, in addition to this reality that will face us all, please look then at how specific Jesus gets at the end of verse 49. This is really Stunning when you think about this as a way of life. Jesus said that the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. And what's that commandment? What to say and what to speak. Now that is not just poetic repetition. For those of you who know Greek later, we can talk about this a little bit more depth, but really what this means is Jesus taught him what to say and how to say it. The Father gave Jesus content to proclaim and the right spirit with which to proclaim it. And we know that both of these things are really important, don't we? Two people can stand in front of a a room of people and say the exact same sentence with a different tone and it's a different message, isn't that right? Jesus was taught what to say and how to say it. 
And what we need to understand, beloved, is that he absolutely submitted himself to exactly what the Father gave him to say and exactly how the Father taught him to say it. When the Father spoke, Jesus spoke. When the Father was silent, Jesus remained silent. Jesus only said what he heard the Father saying, and he never said a single word that he did not hear the Father saying. That is the extent of the submission of Jesus Christ to God the Father. Imagine living a life like that, where nothing escapes your mouth except what you have heard from the Father, and no tone comes out of your face except for that which you have been taught by the Father. Just imagine that, beloved. Imagine that degree of absolute and happy submission of the Son to the Father. Now, I wanna suggest to you that the reason that Jesus brings his public ministry to an end with this particular statement is because the perfect submission of Jesus to the Father is the great reversal of what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. This way of life, one salvation for everybody who believes in Christ, period. Adam and Eve were created and placed into a luxurious garden with all the nourishment that they needed for their bodies and even for their souls. They had everything they needed to enjoy God, to enjoy one another, and to enjoy the creation. God placed them there, gave them one positive commandment and one negative commandment. The positive commandment was this. You may eat of every tree in the garden. Adam and Eve, you may delight yourself in everything I provided for you. Indulge yourself. Have fun. Have joy. See the things that I have done. Taste this. Taste that. Do this. Do that. Know that I have custom designed it all for you. And then glorify my name. Enter into the great joy of your master. And then the negative commandment was simple. But of that one tree there, Adam, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Now when Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, what did he call into question? Did he call into question the works of God and the beauty of his works, the power of his works? Did Satan say that there was something wrong with the physical, visible things God had done? No, Satan called into question the words of God, did he not? Satan called into question the wisdom of God, did he not? Satan was saying to Adam and Eve, do you really think God has told you everything you need to know? I have a little more information that you should really know. Do you think God's word is actually sufficient for you? Is it really enough for you to live on? Really? Man lives by the word of God alone? Really? Don't you need a little bit more? Isn't there something a little extra to spice it up? Don't you think that there is an entree into a a greater life for you, a bigger life for you, a a better life for you, so that if you'll eat of that tree, you'll actually be like God. Now, God isn't telling you this because he doesn't want you to know about this. Do you see what Satan is doing? He's questioning God's logic. He's questioning God's goodness. When Adam and Eve followed Satan's logic and walked in his way, you know what they did? They rejected the words of God in favor of the words of Satan. That's what they did. They rejected God's words. Please do not minimize that fact. It was not simple ideas. They were rejecting specific words and embracing alternative words. This brought judgment upon them. It brought judgment upon all of their offspring, including us. It brought judgment upon the created order, a curse, a condemnation that had 
that would not lift ever unless God intervened in some way, shape, or form, unless God broke in and did something about what they had done, their sin would leave us all undone forever. But praise be to God. He is, as he later revealed himself to be the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful, a God who is gracious, overflowing, lavishing in grace. He's a God who is filled with and characterized by steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he chose from before the foundation of the world to send his only begotten son into the world and to take on the flesh of men. And being found in the form of men, Jesus Christ, the living word of God, beloved, submitted perfectly and happily to every single word of God without exception. Jesus chose the wisdom and the will and the ways of his Father over every other way to an infinitely perfect degree, and he was happy about it, beloved. This was not grudging submission. This was soul-satisfying, enjoyable submission. And in this way, through his submissive life to the words of his Father, Jesus manifested the light of God in the world. He revealed the glory of God to the world. He declared the truth of God with utter perfection and with absolute authority. I just want to encourage you to ponder this fact, beloved. Ponder this and ponder it well. It was the perfect and happy submission of Christ to the words of the Father, the specific words of the Father that provided salvation for all who believe in him. Please let that sink in. It was the perfect and happy submission of Christ to all the words of the Father that led him to provide salvation for all who will believe in him. Now, I know that the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I am aware that Jesus' submission to the Father just in itself is not enough because his blood had to be shed. If his blood was not shed, there would be no payment made, there would be no way for restitution, there would be no way for restoration, there would be no way for salvation, I know that. But I wanna suggest to you that the reason Jesus happily laid down his life on the cross for the joy set before him is because he was perfectly submitted to the actual words of his Father all the way to death on a cross. Submission is the bigger thing, actually. Paul put it this way in Philippians 2. And being found in a human form, Jesus humbled himself, becoming what? Obedient. Obedient. And how far was Jesus obedient? To the point of death, even on a cross. While the shedding of Jesus' blood was necessary for the salvation of the nations, he shed that blood because he lived in perfect and happy submission to the actual, specific words of his Father. Jesus is the only one who came and fulfilled the word of Exodus 16, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus alone got that. Jesus alone lived like that. Jesus alone only said what he heard his father saying in precisely the way that he heard his father saying it. And because that's true, here's what Paul now says about Jesus. You wanna talk about the fruitfulness of that way of life? Here's what Paul says. 
And now God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm not so sure that Jesus had Paul's specific words in mind when he made his final statement, but I am certain that Jesus had his ultimate destiny in mind when he said what he said in chapter 12, verse 50. Here's what he said. These are the very last words of his very last public statement. And I know that his, the Father's commandment, is eternal life. In other words, I know that what he said is good. I don't believe Satan. I believe the Father. What he has said is eternally good. It is life. And what I say, therefore, because of that, I say, as the Father has told me. Beloved, Jesus had deep delight in submitting to the words of the Father because he knew in the depths of his soul the ultimate outcome of the words of the Father. If we walk out of here thinking, well, I guess I just better get better at obeying God's words, we're going to totally miss the point Jesus saw the glory of God and the beauty of his words, and that's why he embraced the words. My Father's words are eternal life. Therefore, what I say, I say only, 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 only as the Father has taught me. This characterizes Jesus' entire way of life as the Father has told me. The perfect unity between the Father and the Son is revealed by the submission of the Son to the Father. The perfect unity of God the Father and God the Son is revealed by the perfect submission of the Son to the Father. And the perfect delight of the Father in the Son and the delight of the Son in the Father is the essence of the glory that Jesus came to reveal to us, beloved. And so to believe in Jesus is to believe in the Father because Jesus is one with the Father. To see Jesus is to see the Father because he is one with the Father. To embrace the logic in the words of Jesus is to embrace the will and wisdom of the Father because everything he said came from the Father. And to put our faith, all of our faith in Jesus is to have eternal life from the Father because the Father has all authority. And what he has said is, here's the path to eternal life. Believe in him whom I have sent. John six twenty nine. it's the only work we have to do in this life is to believe in God and in the one whom he sent. This is eternal life. This is the essence of faith. This is the essence of what it means to believe. This is the depth of what we gain when we gain Christ. We gain everything, beloved. Yeah, sure, we'll have to lose some things. Some of us will have to lose old habits. Some of us will have to lose comfort. Some of us will have to lose some friends here and there. And maybe some of our Somali brothers and sisters will have to lose their life proclaiming the gospel, but it's worth it. Because in dying for Christ, we gain eternal life. We gain a life that can never be snuffed out. Jesus and the Father are one. And when we believe, we enter into their oneness. He's going to say a lot more about this in coming chapters. But please believe me, beloved. He's trying to give us a glimpse now into things that he's going to press into later. And never forget, final words are some of the most important words. And these are Jesus' final words. And with this, Jesus' public ministry now comes to an end. From here, we're gonna enter together after the Christmas season 
into the deep, deep ocean of his final discourse with his disciples. John 13 through 17 is one of the most astounding parts of the Bible, and I cannot wait, I cannot wait to meditate our way through that together. Then we're gonna watch Jesus take up his cross and follow his Father all the way to death. We're gonna watch him be raised from the dead. We're gonna celebrate the fact Celebrate the fact that the word of God became the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're gonna celebrate the fact that our good shepherd laid down his life and took it up again. And mainly, we're gonna celebrate the fact that he did everything he did. He taught everything he taught from John 13 to John 20, basically, at the will of his father. He did only what he saw the father doing. He said only what he heard the father saying. Now, what does all this imply for our lives together here? Today, we'll have three things that I wanna put before you. And the first is this. Since Jesus Christ is the revelation of God in heaven and on earth, and I mean the only revelation of God in heaven and on earth, then let us seek to see his glory. We should make this part and parcel of our lives, beloved. Our greatest longing day by day should be to see something of the glory of Jesus. Now when he was walking on the earth, some people, really a handful of people, had the privilege of seeing him physically. For the majority of history, we've had to behold him by faith as we open up the word of God, and as we enter into discussion with other people of God, and as we trust in the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth and to reveal Christ to us. But beloved, seeing Christ by faith is seeing Christ. You can behold the glory of Christ as you open up your Bibles and pray for the Spirit to help you. He can open up your eyes, beloved, to great and glorious things far beyond anything you've ever asked or imagined. This can happen. Some days, the measure that he gives us to see is is just a small measure. It's enough. It's like manna. It gets us through the day. It doesn't always feel astounding. It doesn't always feel stunning. It doesn't always feel breathtaking. But that doesn't mean it's not real. There are times when Kim and I have dinner or something together and and it's not like the best time we've ever shared in our marriage and yet it was a time we shared and it was valuable and it was good and it was lovely because I was with her and she was with me. But other times and every once in a while I think God just is pleased to open up our eyes to great and glorious things and if we will have the discipline of seeing, seeking his glory, he will give us the privilege from time to time of really, really gaining a sight of his glory. And so what this really comes down to is what shall we do to seek his glory? And let me just ask you a few questions, three questions. Are you making time for Jesus and his words? Are you seeking to see his glory through his words? Number two, what are the barriers that are keeping you from spending time with Christ? And number three, what can you do to remove those barriers today? I would say to you that there, there is a sense in which we can see the glory of Christ in measure through the created order because everything he created is a manifestation of himself. But you can't really come to know Christ except through his words. And what this means is we have to make time for his words. So how are you doing? How are you doing with making time for the words of Christ? How are you doing when you do open up the Bible of just opening up your heart to Christ and allowing him to speak? What is it that's keeping you from Jesus? I know in our culture right now, we are probably the most visually stimulated culture ever in the history of the world. I don't think that's an exaggeration. And sometimes all that constant stimulation works against our heart for Christ. Don't minimize what media might be doing to your desire to seek Jesus. 
And I just want to tell you, you're not going to answer for your life on the basis of your knowledge of your favorite show or your favorite sports team. You're going to answer for your lives on the basis of the words of Jesus. So to his words, have a priority. And I'm not saying there's no place in life for media. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's definitely second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth place. I'm saying Jesus is first, so how are you doing? How are you doing in just seeking after Christ and longing to nourish your love of Jesus? I pray that you would ponder this before him and allow him to speak into your life, allow him to help you, allow him to convict you, allow him to encourage you, allow him to guide you. Second thing, since all of us will be held to account by the words of Jesus, Are you believing in the words of Jesus? Are you believing them? It's one thing to read the glorious words of Christ and even to say, that's some good stuff. I know plenty of people who admire Jesus and admire the things that he said but don't want anything to do with his way of life. Admiration is not enough, beloved. We must submit, we must embrace, we must bow our lives down before Jesus. The way to gain eternal life is by embracing the words and the wisdom of Christ. We cannot reject the words of Jesus and get eternal life from Jesus. It's just not possible. To embrace his words is to embrace him, and to embrace him is to embrace the Father and to have eternal life. So let me just ask you a couple questions. And these are questions I ask myself as well, by the way. Do you struggle with believing the things that Jesus has said? I think most of us would read the Gospel of John and say, sure, we believe all this in some measure, but as you begin to press in and really deal with what Jesus is actually saying, do you struggle with believing? Do you struggle with with embracing what he said, and do you struggle with surrendering yourself to the things that he has said? If so, what exactly is causing you to struggle? And I would encourage you to get as specific as you can. What is causing you to struggle with believing in the words of Christ. Next question. How might your love of sin and your love of self be playing into your struggles? Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. I'll tell you, morning by morning, I wake up, I wanna put on the armor of God, but my greatest enemy is not outside of me, it's right inside of me. And so how are my own habits, how is my own love of my sin and my own love of myself causing me to not want to be with Jesus? The more honest I can be with him about that, the better off I'm gonna be. Because we have a God who loves to expose in order to heal. Satan loves to expose in order to condemn. Satan loves to expose in order to crush. God exposes to transform and to build up. So be honest with yourself. How are you playing into your own struggles? Finally, what can you do to address your own complicity in your struggles? Now, in the end of the day, beloved, faith is a gift from Jesus. The ability to look to him, believe in him, cling to his words, believe in his words, and follow in the way of his words is a gift that he gives to us. But he's given us a part to play. He said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Go after me with all of your heart because it's God who's working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Yes, God is acting in you, but he says, come and pursue me and pursue me with passion. So how are you doing? How are you doing with believing in the words of Jesus? And then this leads us to the final logical point. Since Jesus perfectly and happily submitted himself to the words of the Father, then we ought also to surrender ourselves to the specific words of Jesus. So what I'm saying now is for belief to be true, we have to turn a corner from just saying we believe it to actually walking in his ways. 
So how are you doing with that? Let me just ask you a couple more questions. Are you excited or are you intimidated by learning to live by the words of Christ? Does it scare you or does it excite you to think about living this kind of life? That I only say what Jesus gives me to say and I only say it in the way he tells me to say it. I only do the things Jesus tells me to do and I don't do anything else. Is that way of life inviting or intimidating to you? What is keeping you from fully surrendering to the will and ways of Jesus in your life? And again, I encourage you to be as specific as possible. What steps can you take to overcome the things that are keeping you from this way of life? And again, I wanna remind us that only God ultimately can lead us to live in the ways of Jesus. Only God can do this, but we have a part. And maybe you say, here's what I can do and here's all I can do is just surrender to him and just say, help, help me. Help me to see, help me to believe, help me to act. Well, that's a great to-do. That's a very, very great to-do. So seek to behold the glory of Jesus. Seek to believe the words of Jesus. Seek to live by the words of Jesus. I don't know any other way to better honor what Christ has taught us this morning. So let me now pray that God will help us with these things. Father, I thank you for providing this final statement from the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of John. I'm so deeply grateful for the things that were said here. I remember three, four months ago when I was working through the Greek text for this part of this chapter, I just remember feeling stunned and I remember feeling grateful to you. I remember seeing the power, the depth of the great reversal that is the obedience of Jesus and I remember hungering and longing for that way of life to characterize my way of life and I thank you for the grace that you've given to me over the last few months as I prepared myself to come up in the pulpit in this moment and speak about these things. And now that the word has been proclaimed and now that we have a greater depth of knowledge, Father, I pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit to cause transformation in our lives. I pray that you would transform our desires so that we would desire to see you. I pray that you would give us the power to believe in your words so that we would honor you. And I pray that you would give us the power to walk in your ways so that we would know the depth of your joy. Oh, Jesus, there is no higher joy than living by your words. And so I pray that you would come now and use this word in our lives. And I thank you, Father, with all my heart for what you will do. In Jesus' great and gracious name we pray, amen.